Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. The Iowa Idea was originally conceived at the University of Iowa by University President Walter Jessup and Graduate Dean Carl Seashore in the 1920s. The Iowa Idea brought together practicing artists and scholars to produce a new form of collaboration. The idea blossomed, bringing forth the Iowa Writers' Workshop, the Master of Fine Arts degree, and Iowa City's designation as a UNESCO City of Literature. Nearly a century later, the Iowa Idea podcast explores modern collaboration, craft, creativity, innovation, and persistence. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. The Iowa Idea podcast is produced in Iowa City by Spark Consulting Group. We're all human. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I sit down with the host of IPR's Talk of Iowa, Charity Nevy. We discuss her approach to her show, the importance of collaboration, and the impacts of the current pandemic at the local and national level. We touch upon Iowa City's connection to Catherine Applegate's Wish Tree. And as proud Iowans and political nerds, we try to make sense of what happened to the Iowa caucus in February, what problems were revealed, and what might happen in the future. In this episode, Charity shares the importance of being present and truly listening to those that you're interviewing and synthesizing feedback from mentors, and how context matters and how to make eye contact with your listener, even over the radio. We talk about the power of an authentic voice and personality, and as Charity says, you can't sell what you won't buy. Thanks to Charity for joining me on the Iowa Idea Podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, uh... Want to thank you for joining us, and if you don't mind, Charity, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure, um, I am the host of a talk show on Iowa Public Radio called Talk of Iowa weekday mornings at ten, and I'm also the host of a uh, television program on Iowa PBS called the Iowa Ingredient, and I'm a native Iowan. I live in the Iowa City area. I have two great kids and more pets than I'm comfortable revealing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and we have a strong connection with some of those pets. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Uh, wanted to uh, ask you, how did you get interested in broadcasting? Uh, where, where did that start? It started for me when I was in high school, really. I was always a, um, a backseat listener when I was you know, in elementary or junior high, in junior high particularly, I remember always having morning edition on the radio when my dad drove me to school in the mornings. And um, then when I was in high school, I was very cool, very hip, and um, <laughs> got really excited about Model United Nations. And um, I, as I started learning more about my country was Syria, so I was learning more about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I um, was looking for good sources for international news and really couldn't find anything in Cedar Falls, Iowa, except for public radio. And then I became kind of obsessed with it. So I would listen to, back then, All Things Considered was a 90-minute program. And I would listen to all 90 minutes of All Things Considered every afternoon when I got home from school. 
So um, I really fell in love with the information first, but then with the medium. Cool. And did you, did you major in broadcasting when you were in college? I did not. Um, I knew that I wanted to work in public radio specifically. So I knew that I wanted to be a journalist, but specifically a public radio journalist. In fact, I thought that I wanted to grow up to be Cokie Roberts. That's what I told people when they asked. Um, but I was, I experienced a lot of pressure to go into scientific fields um, when I was both in junior high and high school, just being a, a good student and being in the talented and gifted program. There was a lot of women in science and engineering pressure. And when I told people that I wanted to be a journalist, people were like, mm, oh, really? <laughs> you know, that's, you yeah. won't get any respect. And, uh, you know, so I didn't give it up, but I, I did start thinking about how when I listened, I, I thought, well, I want to be a science journalist because I did love science. I, engineering never held any attraction for me whatsoever. But um, I would listen to people doing scientific journalism. I would read articles and particularly some of the newspaper articles I read. I could tell even as a high school student that the journalist who wrote the article didn't understand fully what they were writing about. So I thought, okay, what I want is to be BS proof. I want to be a journalist that you can't lie to. So I decided to major in political science and biology. And then I wanted to cover politics and science when I got done. So um, I didn't actually take any journalism classes when I was in college, but I did work at the public radio station on campus. So, so yes. uh want to just uh, go back for a second. So you had, you had an interest in, and you were majoring in biology and political science, but you were, right. you were doing public radio. Uh, were you, you were doing that in college? Yeah. So my first job in radio was as an overnight board operator. I worked midnight to 5 a.m. <laughs> and I pushed one button once an hour. But <laughs> I did work my way up from there. So by the time I graduated, um, I was doing... I mean, I wasn't a reporter, but I was, I was really into production and hosting and I was doing all kinds of different things on the air and behind the scenes. And I was working about 40 hours a week by the time I graduated. Right on. A uh, question I have for you too, just given, given the time and context of when we're conducting this conversation, uh, how are you producing your show right now? So I live in the country and my internet connection is as good as it can be. So I'm not one of those hosts that can broadcast from my closet. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, so we have tried to out, you know, move everybody out of the office that we possibly can. And those of us who have to be in the office are there as briefly as we can be. So I go in in the morning at a little bit after nine o'clock and I leave at 11. So I've done all of my prep work and, and everything else that I possibly can do at home. And I'm just there for about two hours. And if I need to pre-record an interview, I can do it from home through a setup like this one. Yep. But uh, I have been really pushing to make sure all my interviews are live because it just simplifies the process so much. And lo and behold, everybody is free now. <laughs> Right. That's what I've noticed. Just launching this podcast. One of the good things is uh, right. people are free and uh, maybe willing to talk to somebody that's not in their house. 
Right. I'm available. Yes, I enjoy hearing other voices. So, but so, the other host of the, the local talk show, Ben Kiefer, is broadcasting from his basement because he's in town and has a stronger internet connection. So he goes in very rarely. And I love that because he's kind of seeded the studio to me. And that means a little less disinfecting. Yeah, that, no, that's great. I appreciate that. And I appreciate everybody at Iowa Public Radio keeping everything going during these strange times. So uh, kind of fast forwarding a little bit, because one of the big themes uh, for the Iowa Idea podcast is really interested in how uh, professionals just approach their, their craft. And so I'm kind of curious, if you don't mind, could you walk me through like, uh, an episode of Talk of Iowa, how you get ready for it, and uh, maybe also what you've, what you've honed or refined over the years? Sure. Um, So it's a team project, of course. We have three full-time producers and then one part-time producer who who works on the show occasionally. Um, And they work on both of the talk shows. So it's not like I get three full producers to myself. That would be luxury. (laughs) Um, But we do a lot of workshopping of ideas together. And I think that once you start either producing a talk show or hosting a talk show, you just look at the world in a different way. And I've certainly found myself being at social gatherings and somebody tells me something interesting and then I've asked them 17 questions about it and I realize that's actually inappropriate. That's not, that's not how you talk to people. So, but you know, we're always looking for show ideas and my favorite ideas for the show are the ones that, that come out of observation that take kind of a a big picture idea and then you figure out ways to tell the story like um right now i mean things are different everything's different right now but i decided that once schools were closed that i would try to do two shows a week that could be accessible by kids as well as adults and so you know realistically i know that my audience is going to be primarily adults but you know if they're interesting enough then everybody can get something out of them so on tuesdays i'm doing um shows with wildlife biologist jim pease and on thursdays i'm doing shows that focus on iowa history and over the weekend a couple weekends ago i guess i was listening to a podcast, uh, Hidden Brain from NPR. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And it's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) And it was about um, the flu pandemic of 1918. And of course, World War I is all wrapped up in, in that flu pandemic. And I started thinking about how people were asked to make sacrifices. Everyone in the United States was asked to make sacrifices during World War I for the greater good. And then, you know, I was thinking about, okay, I know that we did that in the Civil War. I know that we did that in World War II. Um, But thinking about modern warfare, you know, in my lifetime, there hasn't been a draft. In my lifetime, I've never been asked to give up anything because of a conflict. And even after 9-11, the big request was that we go shopping to stimulate the economy. So I thought, you know, people are having a hard time with this giant sacrifice that that we're being asked to make right now. Let's take a look at how Americans have responded through history and how uh, maybe our culture has shifted 
and you know pinpointing really the the vietnam conflict as a time when americans said no you know we're not going to make these sacrifices this is not a cause we're willing to sacrifice for and then the the incredible political cost of anybody asking for sacrifices after that has been really steep uh, jimmy carter asked us to wear sweaters and that wasn't very popular um that was during the energy crisis so anyway that's yeah. i was out i was out for a walk and these things started percolating in my brain and i thought now that is something that i could talk about with historians um and i think it could be really insightful for kids because this is part of the history they've not really thought about necessarily or been taught about and older people are also going to be able to engage with that so um i sent off an email to two historians that I had in mind and to my producer and, you know, through the next three days, the historians said, hey, you know, here are the things about that that I find interesting. Here's where, you know, your theory may be a little off. Here's, you know, something that I want you to consider. And we put all those pieces together. And then that was on the air last Thursday. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if that explained my process at all. <laughs> no, that's, I, it's great. I love that. I, and just digging in too, is that's just one of the things I've found fascinating right now is I feel like, well, I've told one, one of my really close friends is a virology and immunology researcher, and he has a lab uh, in the University of Iowa College of Medicine. And coincidentally, we grew up out of state, both ended up at Iowa for undergrad, both ended up back in Iowa City. Um, but so... You know, talking talking to him about the disease and what we've seen, but I I really never thought that we would see a, a pandemic in the United States, even when there were SARS and MERS or swine flu. I didn't think we'd see anything like this, and that the uh, the Spanish flu was always kind of my historical touchstone. Right. And then with you know my like my grandparents' generation coming out of the Great Depression, you know how they were much more frugal, but it did seem like. Yeah, there was maybe a little bit more of a community effort of pulling together. And yeah, so I find that interesting. You said that um, that's usually a, the, one form of a, a third rail in politics is not really to ask the electorate to uh, sacrifice. Right, right. Absolutely. That seems to be a very unpopular move. <laughs> so it, it's going to be interesting to see how this experience changes us moving forward. And I hope that we get to exp explore that on the show too. I mean, that's one of my great um, privileges. I have so many privileges, but one of them is that, you know, when I get excited about a topic, there's usually a way to explore it with some really knowledgeable and fascinating people. Um, but I also... I don't limit what I do on the show to things that I'm interested in because that would be a pretty narrow um, range. And, yeah. you know, so I try to make sure that we're getting ideas from, from diverse places. Although I will also say that about myself, I'm interested in pretty much everything. You know, even yeah. if I haven't thought about it, you tell me about it, I'll, I'll find something to be interested in. <laughs> yeah. And I have a, so I have a question to, uh, um, thinking of the Iowa ingredient, are you, I'm, I'm assuming you're not able to record right now. Uh, no, and actually that's fine for us because this isn't part of our um, production season. Okay. It, the new, yeah, the new season is on the air right now, but uh, we usually film in, well, parts with me in it. We usually film in June and September and um, maybe a little bit of October. And then they the crew, the producers go out and film throughout the growing season. So this really hasn't set us back for that at all. Although I'm really curious to see um, 
you know, how this affects the restaurants in Iowa. And yeah. our show is really the least of the, the concern about restaurants in Iowa, but it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens. And I'm very worried about that. Yeah. So a uh, question for you then about, because all of the different people that you, you do have uh, on your show and the different perspectives you're able to explore, uh, any, any ones that really stand out uh, from your perspective, from a, kind of a, a craft or creativity stories that you've heard from different Iowans that kind of stick with you? Oh, gosh, that's such a big question, and I should have prepared for it. Uh, because we have, a, we have a joke in the office, we call it Newsheimers, because, you know, we do five shows a week, and then you run into somebody at the grocery store, and they're like, oh, I love the show you did the day before yesterday. And you think, I don't remember the show that I did the day before yesterday. But, but I do remember the conversations that I have. And um, once once somebody gives me a little bit of a clue, then I can yeah. I can really usually explore that. Um, oh gosh, as far as creative process goes, I this is this is kind of this is not exactly an Iowan so, story, but it is an Iowa story. Um, there's a an author named Catherine Applegate who is a I'm a huge fan of hers. She writes for young readers, and I'm a big fan of books for young readers, but um, you might be familiar with, uh, she wrote The One and Only Ivan. Um, she wrote Wish Tree, uh, a book called Crenshaw. I recommend all of these books. They're really spectacular. Um, and so I'd read all of her books. It, she did a whole funny series that's way better than Junie B. Jones called, um, oh gosh, uh, Roscoe Riley Rules, which my son really helped him through that transitional reading phase, but also they're really funny. Anyway, so I had read all of her books and then she did a picture book with an Iowa illustrator. And I thought, aha, I finally, I get to talk to Catherine Applegate. Um, and so I was talking to her about this picture book, but then I also, she had just published a, the book called Wish Tree. And Wish Tree is about... It's about this old Baroque tree that's in uh, a neighborhood and the tree's been there longer than most of the houses, but it was a tree that people used to make wishes on and this tree has a personality and can tell his own story and he talks to the animals that live in the tree. And so the whole book is told from his perspective. And um, at some point there's a, a new family that moves into the neighborhood and they are immigrants from Syria and um, the, the girl in the family is having a hard time fitting in in the community. She starts spending a lot of time under this tree. And um, then someone leaves a hateful note on her family's door telling them to leave. And so it, it explores uh, hate crime. It explores, you know, the um, intolerance in a, a really unique gentle kind of magical way but it's a it's a really special and moving book and i really wanted to ask her about it and as we were talking i asked her you know what's your inspiration what was your inspiration for this and she said well i read a news article about a note that had been left on someone's door right after the election of 2016 that you know said we don't want you here go home and there were a few other you know words in there that right. I'm not going to repeat right yeah. now. 
And um, I said, that sounds like something that happened in Iowa City. And, and she said, it, it was from Iowa City. And I remembered when this happened, it was in the, the Shimmick neighborhood. And I actually know the family who got the hateful note on their door. And uh, their son had been my son's best friend in kindergarten and first grade. They used to go to the same school and they had moved. And so I was just kind of blown away that that really sad moment in Iowa had triggered her imagination to write this beautiful book that, you know, teaches children tolerance, but also is, you know, really a masterpiece, this beautiful thing came out of that ugly action. And so after I got off the air with her, I called the the mother of this family and I told her <laughs> about this connection, you know, and some other really beautiful things had also come out of, of that terrible experience. Their daughter who was valedictorian at West High um, was really galvanized to become an activist and, you know, all of these really cool things. But I sent them a copy of the book and I just, I thought that that was a really wonderful moment. But uh, listening to that author also talk about the, her spark of imagination and how how that built something and, you know, these connections that went from Iowa to California to Texas and to Syria and all over the world was really a special moment. That is. And could you, uh, could you repeat the name of that book just for, for everybody right. listening? It's called Wish Tree by Catherine okay. Applegate. Thank you. So, yeah, an uglier side of... Um, Iowa City there, right? When something happens. But we are not immune even here in our our little bubble. Yep. When when Iowa is at its best, what do you think it is that Iowa is doing? Or the notion of Iowa? Oh, um, you know, I really do think that there is there is something to Iowa nice. And um I, you know, some people like to paint it as sort of a passive aggressive thing, but <laughs> I really do think that we are socialized in this state, at least historically, to be neighborly, to be kind to each other, to be friendly, to look people in the eye, to smile. And we do have our problems, obviously. Um, but I, you know, I grew up in Iowa. And then I moved to Michigan back in 2000. And people always talk about how, oh, Midwesterners are so nice. Midwesterners are so open. And I moved to Michigan and I walked down the street and in my Iowa way, I look <laughs> people in the eye and I smile at people and it just didn't work. You know? <laughs> forms of aggression. You're, you're making right. eye contact. You're showing teeth. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I thought, well, no, it's not a Midwestern thing. It's, you know, and there are other places in the Midwest where, where it happens, but that's, it's that openness that I love about Iowa. And I do find that even when we have strong disagreements, people can connect on some really basic fundamental things. And, you know, anytime that I sit down and I really talk to somebody, I find things that we have in common. There's humanity, of course, in every human. And that's one of the things that I love about my show is that I get to help people share their stories and amplify voices that might not be heard otherwise, but it also restores my faith in humanity frequently. I'm like, oh, you know, we came into this and uh, it's not my job to share my opinions, but there are times when I think this is going to be hard. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know, 
at the core, we are all humans. That's right. Uh, a, que- a question I have for you, uh, and this is, as you mentioned, kind of your interest in uh, political science. And even though it was only February, it feels maybe like a decade ago that <laughs> a we had a million years ago. Yes. Yeah. So we had the uh, right, we had the Iowa caucus, and it was a, a little bit of a dumpster fire. Um, any any thoughts on uh, what might happen to Iowa politically in the in the future, or even the, the notion of the caucus? I'm just curious your perspective. Oh gosh, you know, um, it all seems so clear. <laughs> back in February, <laughs> right. but you know, things have changed dramatically. Um, you know, I love the caucus. I, I love the, just how unique it is and how friendly it is and the warmth of it and all of that. And, you know, we got a terrible black eye for not being able to count this time. Right. And, you know, we all, anybody who follows it closely, I'll remember the reasons for that. And I, you know, I thought that it was, part of that was a little bit unfair um but the the democratic party in iowa really clearly wasn't prepared well with contingency plans right um but if you'd asked me the day after or the week after the caucus i would have said that it's over um and i think it might be and i have mixed emotions about that because like i said i love it but i also feel like it has a lot of equity problems. It's, you know, we just, the percentage of people that participate in the caucus is low and the ability to be able to go and participate and to feel enfranchised enough to go and participate. You know, what if you are an American citizen, but English is not your first language? Are you going to feel comfortable in a gymnasium full of people that speak English. You know, I, I feel like there are just a lot of problems with the caucus system and a lot of problems were revealed this time with the caucus system. So I, I think, I think it may be over and I think that our first in the nation status probably goes with it. Yeah. And that's, that's hard for me because I, I don't know if you know this or not. I'm a little bit of a political junkie. And uh, when I was in high school, I was, I, I, I didn't do model UN, but I was, it was like the, the nerd that was like stringing together all kinds of things in economics class and government was actually involved in political organizing in high school. And when I lived in Minneapolis was a political organizer there. And I've always just been really interested in the political process as, as infuriating as it can be. Uh, mm-hmm. trying to trying to find the light on time. And so for me, the hard part of Iowa losing, might lose first nation status is all of the things that lead up to the caucus. I absolutely love. I just nerd out. Oh, on. yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's hard because I'm, I'm, I'm with you is I think the caucus uh, shows uh, it's it. You have to be really privileged to be able to participate easily and yeah. outside of the caucus day I, I do love I, you know I love the corny stuff from like you know the the state fair I love that people have have gatherings where in in small town communities to to vet um, candidates so I, yeah I it was a it was a, it, I felt like I took it personally too when it when it yes. happened that oh for sure and I I really um I said that several times over the night, over the week afterward. I'm like, I, I understand what happened and I understand why it's being reported on in the way that it's being reported, but it also just makes me profoundly sad and I feel defensive, you know, (laughs) (laughs) completely defensive. But, you know, at the same time, it, 
it's unfair that Iowa has so much power in this process. Although I will also say that there are Iowans and, you know, we fall really easily into that Iowa exceptionalism idea. And I try to <laughs> right. fight against it because, you know, it's not right there. <laughs> there are wonderful people everywhere, but it does feel like we take the process very seriously here. And it feels like that might be lost on a larger state, you know, where uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on here. Yep. We can pause and spend nine months deciding who we want to vote for. Yep. I'm curious, uh, thinking about your your career to date, and again, the kind of craft, creativity, and uh, persistence are different themes that we explore here. And I think one of one of the biggest things, uh, also on a both with persistence and collaboration, actually, really comes to the idea of collaborators and mentors. And I see mentors as a, a kind of a unique form of collaboration. Do you have any any mentors that you know there that you you still hear their advice when you're working day to day? Absolutely. And um, I, I've actually, I've said this many times. There are, are a couple key individuals who I think of things that I learned from them every single day of my life. And even if I'm not overtly thinking of it, I'm doing what they taught me to do. Um, and really my first strongest mentor in broadcasting was Doug Brown, who worked for WOI Radio in Ames. And he was there for, gosh, over 35 years. Um, and he also worked at, at for Iowa Public Television, but public radio was his first love. And he was the program director at WOI when I got there. And I, I got there really right at the tail end of his career. But there was a process that every student had to go through to be able to be on the air, our air clearing process. And so Doug would take care of that, where he would um, first give you kind of a, a philosophical chat about what it means to be on the radio and how people listen to the radio, and then move into sort of the mechanics of, of how to do it. And I will never forget that first chat that we had. And I will never forget some of the things that he said to me that really shape how I have conversations with my listeners today. And he was extraordinary on the air. He connected with people in such a personal way. You really felt every time Doug was on the air that he was talking just to you. And when people tell me today that it feels like I'm talking just to them, that's the greatest compliment I can receive. And it's because Doug showed me how to do it. That's great. There were, there were a couple others along the, the line too, but it's, yeah. uh, and it does, it also has helped me. I do quite a bit of broadcast um, teaching as well, or consulting. I've been, I go to other public radio stations around the country sometimes, then I work with the newsroom or, or interviewers there to help them learn how to connect with their listeners. And it's such a privilege, not just to get to do what I've been taught to do on the air, but to get to teach people how to do it because there are some really simple principles and especially in broadcasting. Um, I mean, people do take broadcasting classes, but a lot of people find their way into broadcasting without getting any formal instruction and in how to do it at all. And then people can't give feedback because it's such an ephemeral thing that we do that it's hard to describe. So the fact that I've, I've used all of these things that my mentors have taught me over the years to come up with a playbook that I can give to people 
that just feels really empowering and really, really good. Well, and it's for me, it's interesting because radio uh, can be such a, an intimate uh, uh, media. And because uh, I, I remember as a kid uh, growing up in Rockford, Illinois, especially listening to radio stations in Chicago. And if I was having trouble sleeping, listening to like late night radio from WLS and uh, also things that I found really funny then. Uh, but also it was, it was nice to hear a voice. But I'm curious, uh, what do you think is, is critical to making that connection where people think that it, or it feels like to them that you're speaking just to them? Is, is there a way to make that explicit? I mean, it, it, like you said, there's a lot of tacit yeah. things. In, in- well, there are a couple um, really simple things that you can do. And the, the first is with the language that you use. Um, I, I guess the first is, is actually understanding that, you know, when people listen to the radio, they don't listen in groups. So we do start, when we start broadcasting, we think about the audience, but you really only ever have an audience of one. <laughs> because you know you listen alone in your car in your kitchen and now I feel like radio has gotten even more intimate because people stick their earbuds right in their ears (laughs) right you couldn't be more alone or more intimate than that um so understanding that you're just talking to one person and then once you understand that the language follows and there are so many cliches that used to be a, a big part of how people talk on the radio uh, you out there in radio land, and all of you, you know, all of who? <laughs> it's right. just me. And anytime you use language that implies that group, uh, you create distance between yourself and the listener because they think you're talking to somebody else. So the, the language follows. But then what I like to do um, when I'm in the studio, and this is something that I learned from another mentor of mine, David Kando was his name and he worked for the CBC for many years and he used to, uh, they called him the host whisperer at NPR. So he used to actually travel the world teaching broadcasters. But he taught me to make eye contact with my listener. He said, you know, if you just read from a page, you're not connecting. And so he had a, a system where you were supposed to look up at the end of every sentence. And as you're looking up, I realized, oh, that's what I would do if I were speaking to someone face to face. If I was reading something to you, I'd look up at you every now and again to to make sure you're hearing me and make sure that you're understanding me. And so when I'm on the air, I pick a focal point and that focal point is between four and six feet away from me because when we have conversations, that's about how far we are apart. And I make eye contact with that focal point. That's my listener. And I talk to that spot. And so that helps me modulate my voice so that it is in that personal zone. And it also, you know, helps me make sure I'm making that connection. So those are, those are very simple things, but any broadcaster can do those things. And it radically transforms a performance. That's, that's great. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, big difference from the, the zoo radio mornings, right? Right. <laughs> well, and, you know, for a long time, um, there was this persona that you put on on the radio, and you still hear that in commercial yep. radio, where you're playing a character. And even with news broadcasting, you know, there was the centurion tone and the gravitas of the news broadcaster. And public radio, one of the things that I love about it is that you're actually supposed to be yourself. but 
you know, maybe the best version of yourself that you can be, but we get right. to be our authentic selves on the radio. And even think about the fact that in public radio, that was one of the first places broadcasters started using their real names, you know? Um, and that's, I think that's part of what it makes public radio in particular so personal. Yeah. And that I, I just love you use the word authenticity. Cause, uh, I do a lot of um, brand work and the biggest thing for me, it's not the surface or, you know, the, the presentation layer of the brand, but it's, it's what is it, what's the authenticity and does it hold true for people? And I just find that application in so many areas that authenticity really helps. And the more that you maintain that, the more vulnerable you have to be, but it also, it, it, I think it makes stronger connections down the road. I agree. I agree. Plus, I mean, it makes, it makes you feel more invested in what you're doing too, I believe. Um, you know, because I, I put my heart and soul into what I'm doing. And I, I can't imagine now that I've had the privilege of doing this job for so long, I can't imagine having a job where I didn't feel that deep a commitment. And I think, you know, you can't sell what you don't buy. <laughs> right, right. A question for you. Uh, uh, actually, a couple, a couple more here, and this is relating to a little bit about craft and approach. But one is, so we were talking about mentors and then talking about advice. And uh, there's an author and artist by the name of uh, Austin Kleon. And uh, a, a book of his I, I enjoyed was Steal Like an Artist. And one of the things he mentioned in there is when you give advice, he, he thinks you're just talking to a younger version of yourself that it's something you wished you would have known. Oh, interesting. Uh, so you talked about some of the tips you have, but as you're, as you're growing up, what advice do you wish you would have had uh, before you got into broadcasting? Huh, that's a good question. Um, my daughter just did an interview with me for a school project and she was asking me about high school, which I find to be the least interesting thing in my life to talk about. Okay. So, <laughs> but... Um, I, uh, I, I did wish that I had a little more guidance from my family in high school because they were very hands off. I was fine. You know, they, yeah. she's fine. She'll, she'll be fine. Um, I don't know, though. I mean, I got, got some really tremendous guidance. And one of the things that my dad said to me when I was in high school has stuck with me forever. And uh, it goes far beyond what he intended. But I was looking at colleges and I was being courted by some pretty fancy colleges and uh, I ended up going to Iowa State University, which I absolutely loved. Um, but it kind of felt a little like a cop out at the time because every single member of my family had gone to Iowa State. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, yeah. As much as I love ISU, um, you know, still there was that, that part of me that's like, but didn't you read this letter from this fancy school? That sounds amazing. And my dad said, you know, you will get out of your education what you put into it. He said, it doesn't really matter where you go to school. And, you know, of course we were talking about money too. And, you know, right. how much, how much of a, a burden do you want to carry with you after you're done with college? But I think about that all the time. I think that's the single best piece of advice I was ever given. And it goes for everything in life. You know, you get out of this what you put into it. And even though sometimes, especially being 45 and a working mom with one and a half jobs and, you know, way too yeah. much to do. And when I, uh, I just feel lucky that the things that I do, I can give my whole self to. And 
I think that although that's exhausting sometimes, it also helps me, it keeps me rejuvenated because it gives me a reason to keep going the next day, even though I'm tired. That's, uh, I had a cross-country coach in high school and I wish I could, um, I, I've, told, I've told my friends and, and the guys I ran with, it's like I'm still unpacking coaching advice that he gave us to this day. Yeah. Sometimes you, you just, you couldn't accept it or wouldn't, right? Because when you're in high school or, you know, he was, he was, he was a tough coach. He was a former Marine. He was a great, great runner. Uh, but yeah, still, still unpacking things. And one of the things that sticks with me about kind of a job well done is what he had described. He wanted the feeling of all of his runners at the end of a race that you were pleasantly tired and you were tired because you worked hard. And the, the pleasantness was that in that you knew you gave all that you could, that you would be pleased with that effort. Because yeah. he said, if you're not, he said, that's going to stick with you hard. It, he, he thought it was, it's easier to work hard and lose a race than it is wondering if you had anything left of the tank that you didn't give during that effort because you'll be regretting that. And it's, it's kind of stuck with me in a lot of things. Is it, to me, it feels like you're going to get out of it what you put in and you're almost going to regret if something doesn't work out and feeling that you had more to give. But Yeah, for sure. Well, a, a dear friend of mine recently passed away, Dean Borg, who was a, also a longtime yeah. broadcaster in Iowa. And I only had the privilege of working with him for 10 years. He wasn't somebody I encountered early in my career, although I, I did as a viewer on Iowa public television because right. he hosted Iowa Press for 40 plus years. <laughs> um, but uh, I was talking to one of his sons and he said that his dad always said the same thing every time the kids went anywhere and even as adults. And he said that it's, it's a piece of advice that was a little bit puzzling when he was a child. And he thinks that he's still understanding it on a deeper level now, but every time they went anywhere, uh, their dad would say to them, don't forget who you are. And, you know, that's, that's really powerful. And I'm sure that if you're going on a, date or going to a party as a teenager, you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but, you know, how, how powerful to think that, okay, in any situation that I'm going to be engaged in, I bring myself to that situation. I'm making decisions and they need to be consistent with my beliefs, not just, you know, of the moment. And I mean, I, I think that's, that's extraordinary advice. I was never specifically given that one, but yeah. I, I sort of feel like my parents passed that one along anyway. That is, that is a good one. And I, I, I do appreciate it at different levels in, in one's life where I could see yeah. myself as kind of a snotty teenager. Just, yeah, I, I know my name. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> I have my dad. driver's okay. license. Yep. I know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Charity, this has been an honor for me to uh, have you on the podcast. I want to thank you so much for, for being here. I, and, and I'll say it now at the end because it's, it's pretty intimidating trying to ask you questions, making sure that, uh, <laughs> that I ask some good questions. So I, I, but well, I, I really do appreciate you here. I, I, will, I will be 100% honest with you. It actually makes me uncomfortable to be interviewed. So <laughs> we're, we're even, all right? Okay. <laughs> Like, wait, I must be a real control freak because I do not like being on the other end of this. Yeah, well, the, it was fun. Even more so, thank you then for for taking the time and kind of sharing your your talents and perspective with us. It was very much appreciated. 
Well, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks. 